Scriptures, to live, to follow, to obey You, to know You. We pray as they're unfolded this morning before our our eyes that we would uh, see You revealed in all of Your glory. We'd come to know You in all of Your goodness. Uh, We begin to fear You, to love You, obey You. uh, That our time would be uh, beneficial and that our lives are transformed by it this morning. Not just that we hear happy, good message, but that we meet you in your word. Father, we pray all these things in your wonderful son's name. Amen. The internet is a wonderful and terrifying thing. If you spend any amount of time on Google, you can find out anything you want. Or on Facebook, you can hear everyone's opinion, uh, whether it's good or bad, you agree or disagree. And so in our text this morning, a question is to be posed to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So if you type that into Google, billion pages are going to show up. If you skip all the ones with the right answer that you already know, and click on the ones that sound sketchy, it's a lot of fun. There's a Huffington Post article about four reasons why you are not going to hell. There's an article about Oprah saying, my God doesn't send people to hell. He's loving and forgiving. You'll have articles from celebrity pastors like Joel Steen, Rob Bell, uh, talking about how God is, is loving, and there's not really a hell. If there was a hell, then it's reserved to really bad people. You're not that bad of a person. Turn your attention to the wonderful world of Facebook. Every once in a while, you'll see an article from a friend, family member, mourning the loss of a relative or a friend. If your friends are like mine, they're going to say things like, heaven gained another angel today. Dad's watching down on us from heaven. Even your strictest atheist friends, when they remember their family members, usually they're up above looking down, sending positive vibes, good energy. What must you do to inherit eternal life? R.C. Sproul, I think, said it best. In the American culture, all you have to do is die. You don't have to be good. You don't have to go to church. You just have to die, and you'll go to heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're sitting there thinking, I heard this sermon last week. You did. The exact same message. Mark wants to reinforce it, re-emphasize it, because we don't understand it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We're going to look at a conversation today in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. Last week, if you were here, the conversation was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same conversation this week. Instead of preaching an hour and a half sermon last week, we broke it up into two sermons uh, on the same question. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17 is where we're going to begin. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 is where we're going to start. If you've been with us for a while, we're going through the book of Mark as a church. Jesus has been teaching, he's been proclaiming, he's been sharing the gospel, the message of truth to people. They haven't quite gotten it. They're trying to figure it out. They're moving towards understanding. Now the second half of Mark, 
Jesus moving towards the cross. We're in the second half now, and I like how Mark chapter 10, 17 begins. As he was setting out on his journey, as he's setting out on his journey, where's Jesus going? Is he going on vacation? Going to die. Mark just throws it so casually out there. Jesus is on a journey to die. He's setting out on his journey, and as he's doing so, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's some unique things about this gentleman. Number one, he runs up to Jesus. This was a culture where it was undignified for men to run. Men didn't run for no reason. He was excited. He was excited to come to Jesus. He ran to him. When he got there, he knelt before him. He bowed down in a sign of humility, understanding that he's in the presence of someone greater than him. He says to him, asks him, good teacher, Good teacher. He's understanding that this man is, number one, a teacher. He, uh, this is a word used for rabbi, someone who understood the scriptures, was able to communicate them clearly. And he prefaces by saying this is a good teacher. Does this just mean that Jesus was good at explaining the scriptures? He was a good at being a teacher? Or is the word good here his character? As we're going to see in Jesus' response, it's the second one. He's talking about his character. He's saying, you are a good person morally, and you are a teacher. He understands who he's in the presence of, or so it seems. And then he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This gentleman in the story, there's not a lot of details given in the book of Mark. We're going to find out as we keep reading, he's rich. Same story is told in the book of Matthew and Luke. In one of those, it says that he's exceedingly wealthy. He's got money. He's loaded. He's rich. We also find out in the book of Matthew that he's a young man. He's not old. He inherited or or gained his wealth as a young man. He had a lot of years left ahead of him. Luke tells us he's a ruler. He's in charge of something. People obey him. He has power and position and influence. This man is an evangelist dream. If you're thinking, I need to share my faith with someone, how awesome is it if someone comes up to you and says, what should I do to be saved? You don't have to go out. You don't have to knock door to door. You don't have to have awkward conversations. Someone just comes up to you and says, I want to be saved. Tell me how to do it. That's the dream especially if you're an introvert and don't like talking to people. It's the dream. Not only that, he's rich, he's powerful, he's influential. This is the guy that everyone dreams of being able to evangelize. I imagine the disciples are sitting there thinking, this is a sign of victory. God is finally blessing their ministry. Think about in Mark all the times that they've been in need. Twice, Jesus had to multiply a snack for them to eat. I imagine they're thinking, this guy's got money. We don't have to go hungry again. He's got power. Maybe we can have a banquet in a palace. Who knows what they're thinking? I imagine they're 
thinking it's some kind of victory. Why? Because that's how we would see it today, I feel. Our view of the hope of the church is men like this, if we're honest. If we're honest. You don't have to disciple them. You don't have to pour a lot of energy and time into them. They want to be saved. They're not poor. They don't need to uh, be given money. They have money. It's not someone who's going to demand all your time. It's someone who uses their time to lead others. I've heard a lot of people in our culture say, if only this person would come to Christ, then the church would explode. Right? If, if for some reason Chris Pratt moved to Elk Grove and he became, started coming to CFC, man, he's rich, he's young, he's got influence. You're like, man, our church would grow. We'd have thousands of people here. This is the kind of guy we think is the future of the church. And so what does Jesus do? He sit the man down and say, okay, pray, pray after me. Repeat this prayer. Make this commitment. Let's make this promise. Let's have this conversation. He answers him with two, questions, or two statements. Verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He pauses and corrects his theology. Man comes up and says, Good teacher, what must I do? Jesus says, Why are you calling me good? Only God's good. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And so he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. The next time he calls him teacher, look at verse 20, he leaves out the good. He misses it a little bit. Jesus says, only God is good. He corrects himself. Okay, sorry, teacher, let me ask another question. Or let me clarify, I've, I've done all of this since my youth. In verse 19, Jesus says, what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Is Jesus teaching here that you can earn your salvation? That if you do good things, enough good things, if you obey the law, then you'll be saved. Keep that question in the back of your mind. As we walk through this passage, I want to see the answer unfold for us. The question is, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commands. And he goes through the list. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. As you're going through this list, a couple things should stand out. Do not defraud. Do not defraud. Is that a commandment? You go through the Ten Commandments, if you were to compare list by list, you wouldn't see that one in there. The commandment that's missing, do not covet. This man is exceedingly wealthy. I think Jesus is correcting here. He's saying this man probably doesn't covet much. There's nothing he looks at with longing and says, man, I wish I could afford that. He owns everything. He has it all. Latest technology, best clothes, fanciest things. He's already got it. He doesn't covet his neighbor's stuff. So he kind of rephrases it. Do not defraud. How did you get your wealth? Did you defraud? Did you steal it from other people? Did you deprive them of wages? Did you earn it illegally? Secondly, do not covet. That's kind of an inward thing. 
I can look at someone and say, Christian is not murdering anybody right now. He's not. He's not stabbing anyone. He doesn't have a gun. He's not shooting anyone. He's not murdering. He's doing good. Is he coveting? I don't know. I can't look at him and say, stop coveting. I'm preaching. Right? I, no idea. It's an Edward thing. Defrauding, though. You can see if someone's defrauding. Their employees are poor. They don't have any money. They're not paying them well enough. Man responds, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All of them. My, from my youth, from the time I was 13, held accountable to the law and Jewish culture, I've done them. Perfectly. Honor your father and mother? Perfect. Do not murder? Never murder. Do not commit adultery? Never committed adultery. If you spend any time in the Gospels, you're hoping Jesus is going to wreck this guy. When people say, I've done it, he comes after them. No, you didn't. Stop lying. He doesn't like people who are religious, who try to base their morality off of what they've done. There's no attack response from Jesus. There's no targeting him, no trying to convict him, no saying, no, you didn't. Right? Matthew chapter 5, it says, uh, do not commit murder, but if you've ever been angry, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. Do not commit adultery, but if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, it's like you've committed adultery in your heart. He doesn't attack the heart of the law. He doesn't go to the inward obedience. He keeps it external. Verse 21, he says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He looked at the man and he loved him. This is the only time in Mark that that phrase is used. He loved somebody. It's compassionate. He looks on them and he is not angry. He's not judging his motives or intents. He loves him. And he says to him, you lack one thing. The man comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Obey the commands. Well, I've already done that. All right, you lack something. Man's ears probably perk up. What do I lack? What do I need? Good teacher, teach me. I want eternal life. Let me know what I lack so I can fix it. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He gives him five commands. Go, depart from me, sell everything that you have. All your stuff, all your valuables, all your treasures, Take all of that money. Don't bring it to me. I don't want it. Give it to the poor. All of it. You will own nothing. You will have nothing. You will not be a rich, young ruler. You'll just be young and a follower of Jesus. Give it all up. Give it to the poor. Come back and follow me. Jesus doesn't say, be willing to. A lot of people will look at this and they'll do one of two things. They'll say everybody in the world has to give up everything, sell it all, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. If you have money, if you have possessions, if you have a house, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, you're going to hell because it says so right here. They principalize it. They make it into a law. One sermon, just going through online titles, the sermon was, there are no rich people in heaven. 
The sermon was all about if you have money, you're a sinner. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what the message throughout Scripture is, that if you have money, possessions, you're a bad person? No. Jesus warns that money is dangerous. Possessions are dangerous. The love of stuff is dangerous. Worshiping your stuff is dangerous. But in Mark, there's going to be a rich woman. In Mark, there's a rich man who donates his grave to Jesus. There's no attack amongst those people. The book of Luke and Acts are given to us by a, a rich man who sends Luke to investigate on his own expense to, to write down what happened. It's not a principle here. The second mistake we then is to minimize it. Jesus didn't really say, go do it. He said, be willing to. Right? Be willing to. Are you willing to sell everything, give it to the poor? I think so. Okay, cool. Come follow me. You're saved. It's not a, a minimalizing thing where it's, are you willing to? Okay, fine. It's do it. This is a test of your heart. This is a test of who is in control of your life. If you go back to the commands, there's only six of the Ten Commandments are listed. We went through the Ten Commandments a couple summers ago, and you remember there's two parts to it. The first four vertically represent your relationship with God. The last six vertically represent your relationship with others. Jesus summarized the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do not obey the first four commands, you'll never obey the other six. Martin Luther went further and said, if you disobey the first two, you'll never follow the other eight. There's one God and you worship him alone. This man, though he loved his neighbor, he didn't disobey on the outside any of the laws that were commanded. He held a God in his heart that was unacceptable. He worshiped his wealth. And Jesus says, we need to deal with that. You need to give up your God. Give up everything you hold valuable and come follow me. I'm not going to come second to your possessions, to your money, to your stuff. This is Jesus throughout the Gospels. He comes to the disciples and says, come follow me. They jump out of their boats and they follow. They give up family, they give up friends, they give up homes and houses and comfort and safety, and they follow immediately. There's one instance where, where they say, Jesus, we need to go bury our father. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. I'm not going to come second to anything. Give it up and follow me. Radical, complete obedience. There's no secondness to Jesus. There's no backseat to something else. Saying, give it up and follow me. Once again, is Jesus teaching that if you do enough good things, you'll earn eternal life. It's starting to sound like it. Right? Obey the commands. I've done those. All right. Give up everything. Give it to the poor. Okay. I think I, this guy, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? If I asked you to give up everything, would you do it? Some of you are sitting here thinking, man, I, I'm so glad I don't have any money. <laughs> Jesus can't ask me to give it up. He can tell you to give up the love of stuff. How much credit card debt do you have pursuing the passions of the flesh? What else sits on the throne of your heart that Jesus is telling you to give up and follow him? How does this man respond? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See the transformation from verse 17 
to verse 22. This man is running. He's excited to see Jesus. He kneels down at his feet. And now he's walking away. Not to go sell everything, give it to the poor. He's walking away disheartened and sorrowful because he had great possessions. He had a lot of wealth he was unwilling to give up. Disheartened and sorrowful, those are powerful emotions. Sorrowful, you're in great distress. There's a lot of sadness there. Disheartened, you've lost the motivation to move on. You're saddened. It's a kind of a heartbreak. I'm going to do something here I, no, I don't normally do when I preach. Lucas doesn't normally do because we want you to be able to read the scriptures and not have to worry about other languages, ancient languages. You should be able to read it in English and discover what it means, and you can do that. What does disheartened mean? You've lost the heart, the motivation to keep going. What does sorrowful mean? You're sad. But there's a cool picture we miss in English because we just don't have the words to describe something. The word disheartened is only used twice in all of the New Testaments. Here in Mark, and again in Matthew chapter 16. And Will's going to put the verse up there in Matthew chapter 16, and you're going to read it, and you're going to think, that's the wrong verse. Mark messed up. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. The word disheartened and that word threatening are the same word. If you've ever seen a storm coming from the distance and it looks scary and threatening and dangerous, the sky is completely dark and the thunder is scary and the lightning is hitting the ground, that's what that man is feeling, disheartened, threatened. There's a certain amount of him that he's going away angry. How dare Jesus? How could he ask me to give that up? Doesn't he know that I'm, I'm richer than him? I have more money. I have more influence. He has 12 followers. I have a whole kingdom. How dare he ask me to give some? I could be so beneficial for the gospel with my stuff. He needs me. I don't know what he's thinking. It's, he feels threatened, angry. Have you ever felt that way about Jesus? How dare Jesus ask me of that? How dare Jesus say that? How dare Jesus demand that? And so we have churches all over America that don't talk about what Jesus said. Jesus didn't really mean that. He was just, very loving, very gracious, very forgiving. You don't need to worry about that verse or that verse or that verse. We don't even teach on that verse. We don't talk about that topic or conversation. Whatever you feel comfortable with, worship that Jesus. This guy's angry at Jesus. He walks away disheartened, angry, threatened. There's another context, though, in the context of storminess. Not all storms are, are threatening. Not all storms are scary. Some storms are just gloomy and depressing. If you had to put an emotion on Seattle, that would be the one. There's a reason they talk about the suicides. There's a reason they talk about depression and sadness. This guy's going away with two emotions, anger and depression. Utter, extreme sadness and gloominess. Why? Why is he that gloomy, depressed? He comes to Jesus running, walks away depressed, angry. He comes, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you lack one thing. Do this, come follow me. 
walks away. In that moment, church historians say this is the saddest verse in all of Scripture. That man chose his wealth over eternal life. That man knew in that moment he was going to hell for all eternity because he loved his stuff. This isn't a parable. This isn't a story Jesus invented or created. This is an actual person who right now is spending eternity in hell because of this one moment and choice. He walks away angry. He says, how dare he? He walks away depressed, knowing the consequences of the choice he made. Verse 23, what do you do with that? How do you, how do you then turn to your disciples and have a conversation about what just happened? They're looking. This is the greatest evangelistic opportunity we know of. The future of our little tribe of 12, walking away disheartened. Verse 23, Jesus looked around. This word looked around once again. Sorry to bring up the Greek. Looked around. You know what it means. I looked. I saw. Uh, in the context of Greek, it's only used three times in all of Scripture. It involves looking, seeing, noticing, peering into the heart's and souls of the people. The other time it's used in the Gospel of Mark is during the Transfiguration. The disciples, James and John, go up to the mountain. They see Jesus revealed in all of his glory, and Joseph or, or Moses and Elijah appear next to him. And the next minute they're gone. It says the disciples looked around. What just happened? Who is this guy, Jesus, we've walked with, we've talked with, we've seen him do miracles, but now he's more glorious than we've ever seen. And so we're looking at Jesus. Where'd those other two guys go? They're looking around. Are they hiding? Where are they? They just disappeared, vanished. I'm guessing they're looking at each other. Did you see that? Did you see that? Are we going crazy? No, we both saw it. Okay, that's That's weird. They looked around intently. Jesus looks around with that kind of intention. I'm sure the disciples in that moment, after they looked around, they're not like, I guess we better get back to the other guys. It's time for dinner. They're probably like, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay right here because that was cool. Jesus is looking around. There's time here. There's intention. He's not speaking right away. He's not playing into their emotions. He's not giving an excuse. He's just looking around judging their intentions, seeing what they're thinking. After a while, he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. First part of 26, and they were exceedingly astonished. You have Jesus three times saying, talking about the kingdom of God. How difficult it is the first time for the rich person to enter. The second time, how difficult it is for anyone, not just the rich. The rich part is left out. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. The third time, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The illustration is obvious there. A camel is the largest object they've seen on a daily basis. A needle is the smallest opening they see on a daily basis. 
There is no way, given enough time, you can fit that camel through the eye of that needle. You can't deform the camel. You can't wait till the camel dies and then push it through the eye. There, there's no way that that camel is going to fit through the eye of the needle. Jesus is saying it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. No, you don't understand. It's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult. It's difficult. It is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. As I was reading this for the first time, preparing it for a sermon, I was taken back by the disciples' reactions. They seemed extreme. They seemed weird. They seemed awkward to me. In verse 24, it says the disciples were amazed at his words. In verse 26, it says they, they were exceedingly astonished. You read through it and you think, it's not really that amazing, I don't think. It's not really that exceedingly astonishing. What did they see? What did they hear that we, we might be missing in our context, in our culture? Maybe Mark was just being frivolent with his words. He didn't really realize what he was saying. He just had a list of emotions. and like, let's throw that one in there. Jumping ahead to Lucas' sermon in a few weeks, if you jump, back to verse, jump down to verse 32 in Mark chapter 10, this takes place after this event. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. Were they amazed at how fast Jesus was walking? Were they amazed that Jesus was sprinting ahead of them? They were still amazed by what they just heard. What they heard, what Jesus said, had such an impact on them that they were amazed. The idea being that this flipped their entire world upside down. Everything they thought they knew, everything they held dear, everything that they were taught in one moment was completely changed. And one of the dangers and the sad parts of preaching a sermon is there's so many good things you can say, you can talk about. One commentary I read had 30 pages on this response to this emotion. If I had an hour, an hour and a half, three hours, I might be able to get to the heart of it. But I've got to try to summarize it in a few moments. Why are they amazed? Because Jesus wrecked their entire worldview. If you look back onto the Old Testament, a sign of God's blessing is wealth and possessions. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament, wealth is seen as a sign of God's blessing of obedience. Abraham, the first person called by God, is exceedingly wealthy. His children are wealthy. Jacob and Esau, they have so many possessions Joseph, who becomes second in command of all of Egypt, has anything his heart desires. After the Egyptians leave in the book of Exodus, they plunder the Egyptians and take whatever they want. They have so many possessions in the wilderness that they can throw them away on a fake calf and still have possessions left over. As they enter into the promised land in the period of the kings, you have David, who's incredibly wealthy. You have Solomon, who's known as one of the richest and wisest men ever alive. In the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God says that if you obey my commands, I will bless you. That blessing includes and almost completely encapsulated by possessions and wealth. That if you obey God, he's going to bless you with wealth. If you disobey God, he's going to take away 
that wealth. Throughout the prophets, that's what you see. The countries come in, they take over, and they take the wealth of Israel away. So they're left with nothing. They have no food, they have no cattle, they have nothing until they themselves are ultimately taken away. And then you come to the New Testament, and Jesus is saying, no, wealth is not a sign of blessing. Wealth is a sign of idolatry. Give up your possessions. Give them to the poor. You don't need that. Wealth is dangerous. Sometimes it's evil. It's going to distract you from what's most important. Give it up. There's something more important than treasure here on earth. Treasure in heaven. Eternal reward. Save up there where moth and rust and thief can't destroy. You see in the book of Acts, the, the followers of Jesus sell everything. And they're giving it to the church to use. That is a huge difference between the Old and the New Testament. Then you get to the eternal life and you see that the, the streets of heaven are paved in gold and, and there's jewels on all the gates. What happened? One of the guys I read, uh, he quoted 1 Kings chapter 10. Why does God give Israel wealth in the Old Testament? It's so that the glory of God can be revealed. If you know the story, the Queen of Sheba comes and visits Solomon and she is blown away by how much wealth and prosperity the Israelites have, especially Solomon. And she says this, Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you a king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This pagan king comes to Israel and sees the temple that Solomon constructed with all the gold, all the intricate woodwork and, and, and beautiful ornate decoration. She says, blessed be the Lord your God. Something's different about your God than my God. My God can't give me that. Your God is the true God. He's in control of all things. He put you in charge because you can execute truth and justice and righteousness because you actually know what those things are. I don't because my God is not as good as your God. The author of this commentary said that God gives wealth in the Old Testament to push them towards the temple. What about the New Testament? John, Jesus says in John 4, we don't go to a, a place, a temple to worship, we go to a person to worship in spirit truth, Jesus Christ. It also says that we are the temple, we are the body. You want to see God's glory revealed, look at each one of us, the spirit of God dwelling in us. It also says that we as the church are being built into the temple of God. We don't need money. We don't need gold. We don't need jewelry. God is glorified in this building more than he was in the temple of the Old Testament. And so the author of this commentary said, we don't need money. We don't need riches. We don't need wealth because it distracts from Jesus. That was kind of cool. Sorry, I think that took longer than three minutes I said. But uh, 30 pages, like I said in this commentary, on that idea alone. That destroyed the disciples' worldview. Completely flipped everything over that they were taught. And they were amazed, and they were astonished. And a couple days later, when they were walking, they were still amazed by it. How difficult it is, how difficult it is, how impossible it is enter into the kingdom of God. 
Your riches can't do it. Your authority, your power, your influence mean nothing. Back to our story. The ideal candidate comes before them. This guy, of course, he's going to have eternal life. He's perfect. He's everything. No, it's difficult for him. It's difficult. For him. It's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. Second half of verse 26, they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Now that's a good question. The man comes in the beginning and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? They see the story unplayed, their world is completely shifted, and they come to Jesus with a question, who then can be saved? Who? If this man can't be saved, then who? You say it's difficult. You say it's difficult. You say it's impossible. And who can be saved? How perfect do you have to be? How obedient to the law do you have to be? How rich do you have to be? How powerful do you have to be to be saved? If this man can't do it, who can? That's a good question. Jesus looked at them in verse 27 and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Is Jesus promoting a works-based righteousness where you enter into God's kingdom based on your own merit? What should you do? Absolutely not. Jesus says, with you, man, it is impossible. Based on your track record, your uh, work, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Who then can be saved? If you're trying to do it on your own, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. He's been hinting at this throughout the entire chapter. The man comes to him and says, good teacher. He says, who do you, why are you calling me good? Only God alone is good. The man should have realized, based on the Old Testament, this man is God. Instead, he misses and says, okay, teacher. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You say, obey the commandments. The man should be like, I, I, I can't do that. That's impossible. Nobody can do that. Nobody can uphold this law. But he doesn't. He says, I've, I've done that. I'm, I'm perfect. I'm good. Do not do these things. Jesus loved him. He said, you lack one thing. What does this man lack? He gives him five commands. Go. That's not really lacking anything. Sell all that you have. Is he lacking poverty? That's a weird thing for Jesus to say. You lack having nothing. Go get rid of everything. You need to give it to the poor. Is he lacking charity? I don't know. Not really. Come, follow me. You're lacking Jesus. You're trying to do it without him. That's what the man lacks. If you look then at verse 24, Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's a flashback to last week's message where, where the children come to Jesus and he says, you must come like this child to enter into the kingdom of God. As a child who is completely, utterly dependent upon someone else who knows they cannot do it on their own. A child who cannot feed himself, who cannot bathe himself, who cannot change himself, can do nothing apart from someone else doing it for them. Jesus says, children, you have to come like that, reminding back to the passage. It's difficult, it's difficult, it's impossible for you to do it. You can't do it. Stop trying to do it. God alone can do it. Rest in Him. 
Obviously, we are on the other side of the cross, the other side of the history. Disciples don't know yet about the crucifixion, about the death of Jesus. We do. Jesus goes to the cross a few days later from this event. He takes upon our sin on himself. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He secures for us our salvation. How, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. Better question, who then can be saved? You, 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 me, us, everyone here, everyone out there. It's not up to us, it's up to God and what he has done for us. Now, if Mark were to end the sermon there, at the end of the passage there, it would have been a great ending, but the more I've studied, I'm glad he doesn't. If you look at verse 28, it continues. They've had this incredible moment. The disciples are amazed. They're astonished. They've heard this glorious truth that they can do nothing. And now Peter's going to pipe in and say something. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. We have left everything and followed you. We have nothing. We've given up family and friends and money and business to follow you. Given up at all. Some commentators will say Peter's being prideful here. Yeah, we're better than that guy. He couldn't give up anything. We give up everything. Aren't we great, Jesus? I don't think he's being prideful. I think that because there's no rebuke from Jesus. Jesus isn't afraid to rebuke Peter, especially of all the disciples. A couple passages early, he says, Get behind me, Satan. If Peter was doing this out of pride, I think Jesus would have confronted him. I think the heart behind this question more is, Jesus, is it worth it? Is it worth it? We've given up everything to follow you. Is it worth it? I ask the youth group guys all the time, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And I love that Peter is going to ask this question. We've given up everything to, and followed you. The heart behind it is, is it worth it? Jesus responds to him, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's how it begins, truly. This is truth. This isn't just for the disciples. This is something that's true for all times, for all generations, for all peoples and all places. The word of God is true, whether it's spoken to disciples or to us. It says, truly I say to you, there is no one, no one, not you, not me, not anyone, not our brothers and sisters who are worshiping in Africa this morning. Nobody who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. Given up everything. Follow me. For, he says, my sake and for the gospel. So not just losing stuff because the market tanked. You've lost these things because you've given up for the gospel. Maybe your family is angry at you because you're at church this morning. They don't talk to you at family reunions because of the beliefs you hold. You've lost friends. You've lost loved ones. You've lost jobs. 
You've given up the house you've always dreamed of because you gave money to the church instead. You've given up something for the gospel. Is it worth it? You say, truly, I say to you this morning, no one who's given up those things for my sake, verse 30, will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this time, not another time, not different time, this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. He's saying, you gave up your family? I'm going to hundredfold that with new families. If you go through these lists word by word, only one word is not repeated. Father. You've given up father in this life? There's no promise of father hundredfold in this life. Why? Because Jesus is speaking spiritually here. You don't have spiritual fathers because God is your father. Greater than your earthly father. You've given up your earthly father. You have a heavenly father. You've given up earthly brothers and sisters. You have spiritual brothers and sisters. You've given up your mother, your family. You have a spiritual family. You've given up possessions and wealth. You have a church that's going to stand by and love you. This is one of the most beautiful illustrations I think we have of the church and the Gospels. How beautiful is this? You've given up your family. Here's a new family. Your family won't disciple you. Here's a spiritual family that will. You're struggling. Here's a spiritual family that will encourage you, build you up. You lack money and resources. Here's a spiritual family that's going to give above and beyond so that you can eat today. That's what the church is for. It's not just a place you come on Sundays once in a while. It's not just to hear somebody talk. It's a living body of people who seek out the better good of one another because I've lost family and friends for the sake of the gospel and you are my reward because of that persecution. Jesus doesn't promise it'll be easy. He says, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have hardship. But guess what? The church is going through that with you. Your mother hates you because you're at church right now. You have 50 spiritual mothers right here who are going to love and care for you. That is beautiful. The enemy has nothing on you because he can take away this. He can take away that. He can't take away this, the church. Jesus says, you'll have a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. Verse 30, and the age to come, eternal life. That's beautiful. That's how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This light and momentary. Culture hates you, that's light and momentary. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Culture's going to attack you, light and momentary. They're going to beat you up. They're going to imprison you. They're going to kill you. Light and momentary because what's coming is far greater. Jesus is saying, you're going to look your eyes towards the future. You're going to look your eyes back to the cross where your salvation was secured. And you're going to look forward to each other, your family in Christ. Is it worth it, Peter? Yes. Truly, I say to you, it is worth it. The man who comes to Jesus doesn't see that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm not going to do that. It's not worth it. He walks away angry and depressed. 
What do we do? What do we do? There's varying levels of application for each of us. Some of you came in this morning and asked the question, what do I have to do to be saved? Trust in Jesus. It's impossible for you to be saved. But with God, anything that's impossible becomes possible. For some of you, you're wondering, is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Surround yourself by this body of believers, and we will show you that it's worth it. Some of you have a God in your life that you are clenching so that you will not give up. Just saying, that's no good. You have to remove that idol, give it up completely, and come follow me. No holding back. Give it up. Give it up. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Come to this passage, and you see how sad the man is. How quickly his demeanor changes because he loves this world. Brothers and sisters, love Jesus Christ and said, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.